0: We're going to jump into the book of John here in a second. First, I want to talk a little bit about joy and, uh, and apologize a little bit for my voice being a little rough this morning. Um, but also tell you, you get, uh, you get a fun little entertaining thing this morning. So the, the typically, the, the people who are going to come in late, um, you're going to get to watch them like immediately look, to, look at their watch. It's the first thing they're going to do. Because what they're thinking is, I thought I was just like a few minutes late, and I'm, I've already missed all the singing and all of it, like that's what, that's what goes to their mind immediately. So we we got to watch that first service a bunch, like from here especially, I could see people walk in the front and go, just like that. So um, it's okay, you never know what you're going to miss. So let's talk a little about joy. Today is the the, the Sunday of Advent, and and by the way, Advent um, the Advent calendar and, and that kind of stuff has been brought into existence relatively recently. So though there's great tradition about it, we also, the things are not always done in the same order. If you um, were at a different church this morning, very likely they would not be talking about joy this morning. They'd be talking about joy next week because um, there's kind of a little bit of a bent in that direction. But, but because of how it fit with scripture and the passages that we're teaching, it made the most sense for us to go ahead and start talking about joy so we talked about hope last week, so I've been kind of wrestling through what I mean, what, what the word joy means to me, and, and how we engage with the conversation about the concept of joy. Um, and so looking at it, I've, I've kind of, and you've heard me talk a little bit about it, maybe, but to really wrap my brain around it, come to an understanding of, of what joy is. So let me tell you what, what I've, the conclusion I've come to at this point is, so that joy, how does joy transcend the experience of the moment? Because joy clearly does. Joy is not just based on what we're experiencing. People delineate between happiness and joy that way. They say happiness is based on what you're experiencing now. And joy is something beyond that. And it certainly is. But there's still an emotional aspect to joy. Joy is clearly something that we feel. So here's, here's what I've come to. I think joy is like worry. So worry is what you feel about what you, you feel it now but it's not about now. It's, not, it's what you feel right now, but it's not, what you, it's not about what you're experiencing now. You can be doing really well now and yet be filled with worry or, or anxiety about what you think is to come. Um, so if Ginger hears a, a, a news article and it says, hey, this guy, there was a guy who was perfectly healthy and then he got sick and died. Ginger's natural tendency is to go, oh, no, I feel perfectly healthy, <laughs> right? Any of the rest of you wired that way? Oh, no, I feel perfectly healthy. He was perfectly healthy, then he got sick and died, and I feel perfectly healthy. What does that mean, right? That's, that's worry. That's, uh, it's not what I'm experiencing right now. It's what I think I may be experiencing in the future. This is why joy transcends happiness. Happiness is what you have right now, but joy is a type of happiness that you have about what you think is coming in the future, not what you're experiencing right now. So you could be experiencing something very difficult, very tragic, very challenging right now, and yet have joy. Because joy is about what's coming. I've said before that I think the experience of joy, and this this makes sense now, the, the experience of joy... Is, is similar to if someone accidentally lets you know the, how the football game that you're really interested in is gonna end, and you find out your team is gonna win before you got to see it. So you recorded it, but before you can get home and watch it, somebody lets slip that your team won. And you're such a fan, you decide to watch it anyway, and, and your team is just getting beat the whole first half. I mean, just getting, you're just getting, just getting slaughtered the whole first half. But in your mind, you're thinking, okay, it's going to turn out okay. I already know they're going to win. So instead of being distraught and frustrated and angry, you're, you're kind of, even though you can't believe they're sitting there, getting, they're losing, you're living kind of an eager anticipation of the fact that you already know they're going to win. That's, that's, that would be like joy, that, that you catch up with the story at some point. That, you, that, that, that what's going on and you know eventually at some point they're going to come colliding into each other. At some point what I'm experiencing now does not dictate the future and sometime the future is going to catch up with me or I'm going to catch up with it and I'm going to collide into that future and all of a sudden I will have the happiness in the moment of that moment which is in my future. I'm going to talk more about this before we wrap up today. Um, but I want to catch up where we are in the story first. Okay, so Jesus has been in the temple arguing with the... He's shown up at the Feast of Booths late. You'll remember that way back in John 7. He showed up at the Feast of Booths, uh, Tabernacles. I was told that when I'm sick, it sounds like I'm saying the Feast of Booths. <laughs> and, and though that is kind of what America Christmas has become in some ways, um, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, which doesn't sound like anything bad. So the, the Feast of Tabernacles... Um, And Jesus showed up late, and everyone was talking about him. He shows up. The debate begins. The fighting begins. Jesus is in the temple. He's discussing with the religious leaders of the time, often called the Jews. And as he's discussing with the Jews, um, it, it, it kind of culminates in them demanding him to declare who he is. And they ask the question, do you think you're better than Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore, declaring himself clearly to be the God of Israel... The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of King David, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, Yahweh. So, of course, they decide to kill him because that's blasphemy. He hides, he sneaks away, he gets away and he gets, as he's leaving the temple, he runs into a guy who was born blind, blind from birth. They have a theological conversation in his presence, and we talked about this last week, you can go back and listen to it if you missed it. They have a theological conversation in his presence. Jesus spits in the dirt and makes mud, which is breaking the Sabbath. He takes that mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. He sends the man man, um, a few football fields away down a narrow flight of stairs through a crowd of people to the pool of Siloam, which means scent, and to wash his face. Um, And the man comes back seeing. Well, the word gets out. This man was blind. Now he sees, he has to go before the religious leaders before he can go into the temple. Blind people aren't allowed in the temple. People with physical handicaps aren't allowed in the temple. So they call him together, (coughs) and they begin to ask him questions. Tell us about this situation. He tells them. They don't believe him. So they call in his parents. Now keep in mind, these are men who go in and out of the temple every single day. They have walked past this man probably hundreds and hundreds of days of him sitting there right there by the door to the temple and none of the religious leaders recognize him. This is offensive, I'm sure, to God in and of itself. Some of you may have seen there was a Facebook video that went out recently where a pastor dressed himself up as a homeless man and sat by the front door of his inner city church and had all of the congregation members of his church just file past him without any of them talking to him. And then it was time for the sermon. He came up on stage as as that man and took off all his homeless clothes and A little bit bit, uh, confrontational way to start a sermon. I thought that would be cool to do, but none of you would buy it. Like, you'd be like, why is Chris dressed up like a homeless guy there by the time? (laughs) I'm not going to talk to him. You talk to him. It'd be totally the wrong reason why no one was willing to talk to me. um, uh, (coughs) Plus, the donuts would give it away. Like, (laughs) why is that homeless man eating all our donuts? So in this situation, they've walked past him over and over again. So the, the, the parents, they, don't, they tell him, listen, ask him. That's where it catches us up. But I want to go back to this concept of joy, of recognizing that in the moment, you may be experiencing something other than a positive emotion that doesn't take away our joy. The joy of knowing what the future will be like, the joy of knowing the truth, the joy of getting to see how it all works together the joy of seeing the beauty of Christ in the world, the knowledge of a victory to come. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. The pain, the rejection, the poured out wrath of God on Jesus The shame in in a shame and honor culture like the Jewish culture is of not only being crucified in a horrific way, but crucifixion was considered the ultimate of shameful deaths. Jesus died that way, bearing all that, endured all that, despised all that because of the joy that he had even in that experience because he knew what this was going to accomplish You can even be being tortured to death with the wrath of God poured out on you and experience joy. James references this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So even when you face hardships and challenges, even when you face trials and temptations, you know in the end, this is going to work out. God's going to work this out in a way that helps me to grow and learn and develop and for my character to be strengthened Therefore, even in the hardship, I can have great joy about what is to come. Even if I'm not joyful about what's happening right now. <coughs> Consider this poor man. He has been blind since birth. His prospects are not good. Israel is a beautiful country. It's really shocking when you visit it that it's, it's so different from any other place you've ever been in some ways. In one very small place... So this this man never has any hope of seeing a storm over the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't have any hope. He is literally sitting at the gates of what is considered one of the wonders of the world, the Jewish temple, and he can't see it. He's not going to see Galilee from Mount Arbel to look out across the entire region from a cliffside. He's not going to see the Dead Sea and and all the wonders associated with the Dead Sea or or any of the other amazing things. He's not going to see the Mediterranean. Or the Red Sea. Or the desert where Moses wandered. All of these things are, are, are something he's never going to know. And he's never going to experience. And then suddenly all of these things are on the table. He had no joy about these things. At least he had nothing to look forward to. At least when it came to these things. And yet now all of a sudden it's all back on the table or in his case, back as it's on the table for the first time ever, as things he might experience. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. I sometimes wonder if Peter was thinking about even this interaction with Jesus when he wrote this. He's speaking to us, the future believers, scattered throughout the world. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And listen to this language, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. <coughs> Why? <coughs> Verse nine, because you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Sorry, one more cough coming. <coughs> Sorry, I'm triggering everybody else's coughing too. <laughs> it's okay. All right, so, so for the second time, here we are back in our story. For the second time, they called the man who is blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now they're talking about Jesus. This man is Jesus. They're saying, we know that Jesus is a sinner because <coughs> he doesn't obey the Sabbath. So give glory to God. In other words, this is, a way, this is a good Jewish way of saying, tell the truth. It comes from Joshua. Um, when Joshua confronts Achan, Achan who had hidden things from Jericho, and, and Joshua had cast lots and figured out that it was Achan, and in, in Joshua 7, 19, Joshua says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And Tell me what you've really done. Do not hide it from me. This is probably their way, therefore, of saying, it's time to tell the truth. What really happened? We know he's a sinner, so he can't have healed you. So what really happened? We know there must be more to the story. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. Remember, this man has no idea who Jesus is still. He's never met him. He's never seen him. He's completely clueless. He has no idea about any of it whether he's a sinner or not I don't know here's what I do know I was blind <clears throat> now I see it's a great argument this is what he knows listen this is what I experience when all the other arguments run out for you can you answer that this is where I was and this is where I am this is what life was like and this is what life is like now This is before Jesus. This is after Jesus. What a great witness this man is. Because he has no dog in the fight. He didn't know who Jesus was. Some guy walked up to him and healed him. What's your agenda here? I have no agenda. I was blind. Now I see. That's my whole agenda. Okay. Again, he only talks about what he knows to be true. Which is... More proof that Facebook had not yet been invented at this time, by the way. So they say to him, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And the man replied, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Now listen, (laughs) none of the commentaries I read believe this is authentic. Meaning, he is being snarky here. He doesn't really think maybe they want to be his disciples. He's getting fed up. And you're going to see in his next exchange, he's going to get actually aggressive with them. He's he's getting annoyed. Now, my heart goes out to him. This is a man who sometime in the last two to say 12 hours could not see. Now he can see. Hey, the poor man comes up from the pool of Siloam, comes back up to the temple He has to go speak before the Sanhedrin before they can let him in. He goes and speaks before these Jewish leadership and he's been stuck in their office for the majority of his sighted life. There could be stars outside right now that he's never seen and he's stuck talking with these people. Well, no wonder he's getting irritated with them. There's a whole world of wonders for me and I'm stuck in here with you people. So stop asking me these questions. So he gets snarky back with him. Why do you want to know? So that you can become his disciples too? <coughs> they're, not, they're not happy about this. They, say, they reviled him. Insulted him. That's professional, by the way. When you're religious on the religious court. Mocking people. They reviled him saying, you're, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. First of all, this is a false testimony. He has made no claim to be Jesus' disciple. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. So they're going to proclaim him to be the follower of Jesus before he is a follower of Jesus. This guy gets to be like the first persecuted Christian, and he's not even a Christian yet. You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses. But as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, verse 30. Well, now that is an amazing thing. Complete sarcasm. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. You're the religious leaders. This is what you do for a living. You're the ones who are supposed to know this stuff. And you're asking me? I was blind. And you're asking me to make a decision about this religious man who I've never met and you don't even know where he's from. He just performed a miracle in your, right next door to your temple. I mean, this far from your temple. And you don't even know where he's from. This is, this is flat criticism on them. Verse 31, he then gives them back their own words. This, this is teaching of the religious leaders of that time. We know that God does not listen to sinners, Right? But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's now lecturing the religious leaders on what the God would do under these type of circumstances. <clears throat> this is what you guys teach. God doesn't listen to sinners. That's why he listens to you because you're not sinners. Why he doesn't listen to me because I'm a sinner, right? So the problem is some guy just walked into your front porch. God used him to heal someone in a way that has never, ever, ever been done. And you don't even know who he is. It seems to me like the man is making it clear. I'm not the one with the problem. You have a problem here. He goes on the offensive. This is their own material he's throwing back at them. And they answer him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Now, this is obviously the way of things. When someone clearly beats you in an argument, what you do is you you begin to attack them. No longer attacking their argument, no longer discussing it, you just attack them straight out. It's a good sign that you've won the argument when people begin to attack you directly. that's what's going on. They attack him directly. You were born in utter sin. Now ask yourself, how did they know he was born in utter sin? Any guesses? Because he was born blind. That's how they know he was born in utter sin. How dare you lecture us, you who were so hated by God, that God had you born blind. And then they kick him out. This means probably... Literally cast him, excommunicated him. You are no longer a Jew, in our opinion. This poor man, who's probably still never been in the temple, is now told, and you never will. They bar him from the temple, which is heartbreaking and unjust and infuriating. But notice the mistake they just made in their anger. How do they know that he was born in utter sin? Because he was born blind. They still have a big problem. They just interviewed a man who was born blind, who's not blind anymore. This this should be the research project of their lives. There's four or five PhD theses hanging on the line right here. With this this man. Hey, we got to figure out what's going on here. Instead, they cast out the very evidence that who they claim they've been looking for for hundreds of years just walked through their door and they cast him out because they don't want to hear it. We're going to hear more of that, that, how awful this becomes by the end. They don't want to hear it. God forbid the Messiah who they claim they've been waiting for actually shows up, right? <clears throat> so that's their response. They kick him out. Now, I love this. This is really cool. He was born in utter sin. Now, the problem is that's actually true. Just like they were, just like we are. We're born in utter sin. We need a savior. From our first little conception, the first time that little single-celled organism divides, from that instant, from the instant that those two single cells come together to create a single-celled organism, that little cell needs a savior. And, And Jesus has come to be that savior because we all are on the wrong side of this. Their comment here admits this was a man born blind, and now he can see. This is the question that's going to be left with us with this, when this plays out. If Jesus is someone who can make a man who was born blind see, who is he? It's a fair question. So they cast him out. And I got to love this. Somewhere Jesus is still in the city. We don't know if this is the next day or now late at night or what. Jesus is still in the city. And Jesus, verse 35, Jesus heard they cast him out. So having found him. Now that's nice. Isn't that nice? That just strikes me as a cool shepherding thing to do. Jesus is somewhere in the city, who knows doing what. Word gets back to him. Hey, you know that guy that you sent down to the pool of Siloam? By the way, first of all, he can see. Second of all, they just cast him out of the temple forever. And so Jesus goes and hunts him down. I just think that's cool on Jesus' part. So Jesus walks up to the man and remember to him, Jesus is a complete stranger. <clears throat> Jesus walks up to him and says, do you believe in the son of man? I-, I wish I had the exact setting. I'd love to know where the man was. Is he sitting and looking at the temple he can never walk into now? Is he sitting somewhere where he can see it? Maybe he's down by the pool of Siloam. If it was me, I would be by the pool of Siloam, the first place that I ever saw. And Jesus come walking up to him, total stranger, And says, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's an odd way to start a conversation, isn't it? But this is actually a theological, rabbinical question. Jesus has all his students following behind him. He walks up to this man and asks him a rabbinical question. What do you believe about the Messiah? Do you believe there's a Messiah coming? Do you believe the Messiah has divinity within him? See, the Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel. Son of God to us feels like an obvious statement of, God, of Jesus being God. But as we're gonna see in a couple chapters, in that day, Son of God doesn't necessarily mean divine. Son of man, typically after Daniel, does. And so Jesus is making a question Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe there is a Messiah and there's a divine quality to this Messiah? Again, odd way to start a question but he's a rabbi starting a conversation. Does the man recognize the voice? I'm hard-pressed to believe that he would, although I know blind people can sometimes, they pay more attention to some of that kind of stuff, so maybe he does. But Jesus asks him that question, and the man answers, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus asks this deep theological question, and the man assumes he means he's right here. It's kind of like that old joke of like when you ask about um, you know, a musician <laughs> and someone says, "Do you know this musician?" And they're like, "Well, I mean not personally." Well, it's the same thing. <laughs> Do you believe in the Son of Man?" Well, I mean, I haven't met him yet. Is he around so that I can believe in him?" And listen to what Jesus says. This is just cool, guys. Who is he, sir? That I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Dang, that's getting to the point. You have seen him and it is he who you are speaking to. He's speaking to you right now. How many people has this man seen? Yeah, almost none, right? But you've seen for hundreds of years the Jewish people had been waiting to see the Messiah. This guy just happens to get his sight while he's wandering around. This this is a huge moment in human history and this guy, though born blind, gets to see it. The shepherds saw Jesus. When we do the nativity scene, the shepherds saw Jesus, which makes total sense, by the way, for the shepherds to be the first to see Jesus. Jesus was... Uh, a lamb being born in Bethlehem. And when lambs were being, Bethlehem is only a couple of miles from Jerusalem and the main purpose of most of the cities around Jerusalem was to have sheep so that those sheep could be then sacrificed in Jerusalem when the sacrifices were needed. And so the shepherd's main job was to check to make sure that a, a lamb, to, to register whether a lamb was a firstborn male without blemish. Because if it was a firstborn male without blemish, it was worth a small fortune so it could be sacrificed. All the other sheep were great, but those were special. That was their main job was to set apart and to declare, this is a firstborn male born without blemish. So it makes sense that the the angels came and proclaimed to the shepherds, go see him. Where is he that we may see him? Go see him and check him out so that you can declare, yes, in fact, firstborn lamb, male without blemish. The wise men, as we're going to talk about again in a second, they went to see him. They went and visited him, <clears throat> Mary and Joseph, the, the, um, John the Baptist, the, the early prophets who were right there in the midst of it. These people got to see and experience this coming king, this newborn child. The wise men, when they showed up, understood enough about who, that they, were, who they were seeing to bring the proper gifts, um, as the old song teaches us correctly. Gold for a king and frankincense for a priest and myrrh for a dead man. This is, these are the right gifts to bring. This man is one of the few who got to see him while he walked on earth. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, he uses the same word twice. In verse 36, he says, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, that he is who's speaking to you. And the reason the Bible, your translations will say, sir, there is because this word can just mean like a a respectful title, sir. Or it can mean Lord. Same term. And it's the same word used in verse 38 when he responds. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's the same word that was used for the wise men. They worshiped him. They fell on their face before him. To kiss toward is the literal meaning, to to fall on your face, to kiss the feet, to kiss the ground at someone's feet. The idea of coming and letting us adore him. Now he sees. He saw him and now he sees who it is that he saw. And then Jesus makes this proclamation. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Um, In Ellicott's uh, commentary, he he says it this way, Those who know they see not may see. Those who believe that they see shall see not. Some of the Pharisees got that. They overheard Jesus near him. They heard these things. They said to him, Are we blind? And Jesus said to them, Well, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see... Your guilt remains. They go to the physical again. They are not only blind, but they are blind to their blindness. If you were blind and aware, you could be healed of it. It's an issue of need. They don't think they need anything from Jesus. In fact, they don't think anyone needs anything from Jesus. What keeps us blind is the belief that we are not blind. That somehow we get it better than everybody else does. We're just somehow that much smarter that much more sure, that much more pride that's in us. What keeps us blind is that we somehow think we were not born into utter sin. We refuse to see. Think how much of this, this sight versus blindness and how it's connected to joy. Prejudice versus joy. Hatred versus joy. Ignorance versus joy. Hypocrisy versus joy. The joy that comes with seeing. Even if not with the eyes, the heart joy is, is what you're experiencing now and and believing what you're going to experience in the future so the the, the thing that stood out to me as i'm going through this and, and and this even showed up after i'd already written this showed up in the video that we're going to see here in just a second but a moment of joy where i'm experiencing the fullness right now and looking forward in the future happened about 25 years ago in a couple of weeks when, you, when, you, when a man looks down the aisle and he sees his bride coming to him, the joy of that moment isn't just about that moment. It's about <clears throat> all of the years that are to come. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean everything's going to be fun. But the, the joy of knowing a life together coming and experiencing each other, the intimacy of that, moving forward in life, having someone to share life with, like that's a, there's a great power in that. When a, there's Holland. (laughs) So um, a new child born, the same thing. Is it going to be easy? No, children are hard. But but the joy of looking forward at what this life is going to mean and what this life is going to bring, we experience joy even in the midst of the suffering where that child is born or adopted. Did you go, is this going to be easy? Of course not. But the joy of looking forward and seeing what does it mean to invest in this life and have this life be invested back in yours. These are are great moments of joy. Jesus is going to tell us when we get to John 14. There will be trouble. There will be trials. Political, international, family sickness, you name it. Things we cannot yet see (coughs) past our own blindness. So the challenge for us is this. as As we're going to move into the other part of our service. Is this question, if Jesus can heal a man born blind, who is he? These next two chapters are going to ask this question, who is he? That's the question that's laid on us. If you already know who he is, then we can celebrate with joy the coming uh, of the Messiah who has come to save us. Of the one who has come to remove our blindness and help us to see more and more.